especially to our ensemble, what a joy it is to share with you in worship. It was uh, 12 years ago or so when I uh, preached on the story of Jonah from the Old Testament, and I remember seriously trying to convince the congregation that we're meant to hear it as mythology, not in the sense that it's not true, but in the sense that it was true, is true, and ever shall be true, that it is really a parable for us. And that being the case, then, we don't have to struggle so much with the biology and physics of Jonah being swallowed by a fish and living in his belly for three days. I was seriously wanting to convince this congregation that that was true, mostly because, looking back, I wanted you to seriously take me seriously. I probably should have said this. Really, the book of Jonah is like a spoof, a farce, a comedy, aimed at making us laugh at our all-too-serious selves. The point is that when it comes to our religiousness and our religious stuff, we are all too much like Jonah. In fact, we are Jonah in this story. Now, I'm just going to start the story of Jonah, first verse from the first chapter, and read through verses 1 through 3, and then I'll tell the story thereafter. See this and hear this as what it's meant to be, a comedy, in the way we might view a Seinfeld episode. In fact, many Seinfeld episodes were built on the foundation of just this Jonah story. Everything in this story is organized around four conjunctions, but, B-U-T, but, 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 but. It delineates every major change in it. Hear it as it comes to us now in the first verse. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. It means dove of uh, son of truth. And dove doesn't mean like the dove of peace as in the Noah story, dove means a weak bird, doesn't really have much oomph to it. Uh, and so Jonah gets that name, dove, dove of son of truth. And the word of God came to Jonah and said to him, go at once to Nineveh, that huge, monstrous, great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up to me. First conjunction, but... Jonah set out to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. It was as far away from Nineveh as you could go. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid his fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish. Where was he going? Not Nineveh, three times Tarshish. To get away from the presence of God. You know that old joke, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. The whole issue here hinges on that one word, but Jonah chose to go to Tarshish. 
Now, the reason he didn't want to go to Nineveh is because Nineveh was the capital of Babylon, and Babylon was the arch enemy of Israel. They're the ones who exiled Israel and Judah out of their land and took them as slaves back to, Babyl to Babylonia. And the last thing that Jonah wanted to do was to go there first because, I mean, who wants to go to your enemy's land? But secondly, Jonah knew he was afraid that God, being a just God, a righteous God, a loving and grace-filled God, that God might in fact not punish the Babylonians in Nineveh, but in fact might forgive them. And so Jonah didn't want to go and proclaim to them the good news for fear that God would then claim them as his own. I mean, what good is it to be a Hebrew prophet when you got God on your side if you have to now be on the same side with your enemies? Something tribal about it all. So in a sort of two-year-old disobedience, Jonah decides to go elsewhere. Second conjunction, but. But the Lord sent a great storm upon the sea and threatened the ship's safety. All the sailors began to pray to their gods, asking for help. They threw cargo overboard to lighten the ship in hopes that it wouldn't sink. During all this time, Jonah is fast asleep in the hold of the ship, having no conscience to keep him up at night. The captain went searching for him, knowing that, you know, he's this new passenger on board. Maybe he has something to do with this. Now they call a bad luck passenger Jonah, by the way. So when the captain found him and, no, and, and Jonah's asleep, the captain reams him out for why you were not praying to your God on our behalf, then whisks him up to the deck of the ship to meet the sailors and the sailors ask him who are you and why are you here and he begins to tell them that he is a Hebrew prophet and that he is the prophet of the God Yahweh the creator of all things heaven and earth the sailors huddled up to discuss among themselves what this meant the sea became more violent by the moment busted Jonah, always playing the victim, told them to throw him overboard. But the men, being too righteous and afraid to have his death on their hands, the guilt of his death, chose to row harder even more trying to save the ship. Finally, seeing they could not save both Jonah and the ship, they prayed to Jonah's God, Yahweh, for mercy and then threw him overboard Jonah has already convicted or witnessed to these sailors who now believe in the same God Jonah does, and it is completely inadvertent. Into the sea he goes, down into the depths and the darkness, metaphorically always the image of us going into that deeper, dark subconscious that we, that we live with, that we don't really want to attend. He goes... And he's going to die there, except, but, the text says, God sends a big fish to swallow him up so he doesn't drown. It's not a whale, it's a fish. As Jonah sat there in his deep, dark, subconscious self, he really wanted to tell people, and especially God, that he indeed was bottoming out that he had hit bottom but he really hadn't he's just pretending as if he had and 
He's completely closed off from the presence of God deep down in the belly of that fish. There's no Wi-Fi. There's no connection to anything except himself, and he has to look at himself, but he still can't see him for himself or who he is. For three days, he lingers there. Three days, Jesus was in the tomb. Three days, Jonah in the belly of the fish. Three days means the amount of time for completion in Hebrew literature. And one would hope that Jonah, who takes himself so seriously as one of God's prophets, would see himself as he truly was. That is, a self-righteous prig who wanted only to save himself and those around him, but not anybody he didn't like. So he offers up this self-serving prayer to God down in that fish, and he says, As my life was ebbing away, God, I remembered you, the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. Oh, Jonah was a serious dude with serious piety. Meanwhile, the fish suffering terrible heartburn from the self-righteous gas of Jonah in his belly had enough. When he drew near the shore, he vomited him up on the land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. You can run, but you cannot hide, saying, Get up, Jonah. Go to Nineveh and proclaim them the good news. With little choice left, Jonah went, but not willingly. Nineveh was so big it took Jonah three days, there's the number again, to walk across preaching to them the good news. Actually, it wasn't heard as good news. It was heard as if you don't repent in the next 40 days, God is going to squash you like an ant. He hated the job for fear that they might actually take him seriously and repent. And that's exactly what happened. All the people turned from their gods and their dark style of life and came to Yahweh, the creator of the universe, even including the king who ordered the people and every living animal in the city to fast. We're supposed to laugh at that. I mean, think about it. How do you order cows and sheep grazing in the pasture to fast? Like, no, you can't eat that grass? But this is part of the humor in it. It's a spoof. Then the king orders every human and every animal to be covered in sackcloth and ashes. Again, I can see the humans, although that's a lot of sackcloth, 120,000 people, but all the animals too, you might be able to get sackcloth on a cow, although I suspect it would be awkward. But tell me how you do it with a bull. Then God saw, this God saw that the people had repented, and so God repented too, it says. That is, God changed his mind and chose to save them instead of destroy them. But... Jonah was so self-righteously angry about this that he chided God. 
Oh, Lord, this is exactly what I told you would happen if I chose to go to Nineveh instead of Tarshish. I knew you were gracious, full of mercy, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and that you would show mercy to these terrible, nasty Ninevites. Then playing the martyr as Jonah was good at, and the victim, Jonah then prayed to God to take his life a second time because his enemies had been shown grace. Yahweh shoots back, what right do you have to be so angry? Then Jonah takes his big old bad self outside the city and he sets up a little camp, a little tent for him east of Eden and throws up a waiting game to see what God might actually do. And what God did, of course, was yank Jonah by the chain one more time, causing this lovely broom tree to grow up overnight, giving Jonah this nice shade. And during that day, Jonah was exceedingly happy because he had this shade of a broom tree. And then that night, yanking his chain, God sends a nasty little worm to come and cut the broom tree down where it collapses at Jonah's feet. Then God sends the hottest day of a thousand years so that Jonah could sit and stew in his serious self-righteous self. And Jonah asked for the third time that he might die. Come on, Jonah. Seriously? Then the final but. God said, is it right for you, Jonah, to be so angry about that bush? Yes, angry enough to die. Then what right do you have to be so angry about a bush which you had nothing to do with in its coming up? or it's dying when you have no concern at all for the people of Nineveh, all 120,000 of them, now the punchline, who don't even know their right hand from their left, that is to say they're clueless, who don't know their right hand from their left and all the animals. Ha! We should be rolling in the aisles, laughing so hard at this story that tears are coming out of our eyes. It's George Costanza who gets his inflated self squashed one more time, and we laugh at it because it's us. One time I was watching the Antiques Road Show. It was about 15 years ago, still in Atlanta. And this very serious, fastidiously dressed Elite woman comes up with this perfect vase in her hands that she clutched very tenderly. And she told the examiner the story that this had been passed down through generations of her family. And she was expecting the, uh, the antiques man to say, well, it's, it's worth thousands of dollars. And so we looked at it and turned it around. And, and then he said to her as gently as he could, you know, I'm sure this vase means a lot to your family. 
But I hate to tell you that it's a reproduction of one probably created in the 1950s, and her face fell like an anvil had been tied to her chin. I got so tickled at that that I started laughing so hard I couldn't stop. Have you ever done that? Literally, you can't stop laughing. I laughed so hard that I got asthma, which happens when histamine overproduces during, last, uh, during laughter. I was rolling on the floor. My family came running in to find out what was so funny. They contagiously caught the laughter as well. I had to run to the restroom so that I would not mess my pants up. I was laughing so hard. And what I discovered, of course, is that it wasn't her I was laughing at. That would be mean. It was me. My own serious, pietistic, self-righteous pride presenting myself as a valuable object of God's respect only to find that really I'm only a 1953 reproduction. Valuable, yes, in the eyes of God, but not near as valuable as I think I am in my own eyes. We're Jonah, especially when it comes to how we take ourselves seriously around the issues of religion and politics or ourselves. We start believing that we know more than God does, that we know who God should save and who God shouldn't, that we know what mercy is about and what justice is about, what love and grace are about, and who will or who will not get it. And then we think we're in charge of our own personal Taliban. There's nothing like the seriousness of the religiously minded paired with the Bible or the Quran to draw the worst part of us out. And we all know instances of preachers who have thumped us on the head or the soul with their Bible, me included, I apologize. And when it gets really serious, it always leads to violence. Either violent threats that if you don't do this, you will not go to heaven or violence in life, saying, if you don't follow my way, then I'll have to kill you. That's the point of this book of Jonah, and it's calling us to laugh at ourselves and not take ourselves so seriously. Jonah's story is about our comeuppance. The pompous, arrogant, proud, and righteous of us, perfectly dressed at the head of the table, spills soup on his tie, and we all laugh. Or the football player, in your face, trash-talking, gets a free run to the goal line, and right before he crosses over on the one-foot line, he spikes the ball in your face, only he never made it over the goal line. And we laugh because he got his comeuppance. The proud and arrogant end up making fools of themselves, and the fools end up being the very ones that God embraces. We laugh. That's why I have come to love this story, I think, as much as any other sandwich between these 12 prophets, Obadiah, all these serious prophets is this Jonah 
story to sort of remind them and us that we can't take ourselves too seriously. In the Bible, whenever that happens, it ain't good. You've got Adam and Eve claiming that they know they can eat of the tree of knowledge and then know as much as God. They take themselves seriously enough to think that and then it doesn't end well. You've got David in all his kingly power looking down at Bathsheba bathing and in his serious power he calls Bathsheba to him and it doesn't end well. You've got Paul, the apostle, taking his own piety and Jewishness so seriously that he persecutes all the Christians because they're heretics until one day he's walking down the road and he thinks he knows everything until he gets struck blind by the love of God in Jesus Christ. And in that dark blindness, he discovers his own self-righteousness and begins with the same fervor to proclaim that the Gentiles are as much a part of God's love and kingdom as are the Jews. The key to this story is to see its place in context, its form, which is comedy. If you've ever heard Jonathan Winters, the great comedian, Robin Williams' mentor, really, if you've ever read his jokes, they're not funny, but if you watch Jonathan Winters do it, it breaks your heart in laughter like a Jack Parr program when he comes out and he says I've done a lot of things in my life I'm not really proud of I'm hoping my family doesn't get mad at me for sharing this but have you ever undressed in front of a dog of course everybody starts laughing because of his face you can undress in front of a bird they don't care cats they just yawn show indifference but a dog a dog will look at you and when, he, when he's looking at you, he's got this big old smirk on his face. And you see then what you truly look like. Not the you you see in the mirror with blind eyes thinking you look so good, but the you you really are. It's not a pretty sight. There's plenty, plenty of things tragic about our bodies to begin with. But to have a dog smirk at us, whew. You see, the thing about tragedy is that it's always about separation, right? But comedy is about reconciliation. It is about the power and mercy of God's grace to reconcile and include all of us, even Jonah. In the finale to this serious religiosity, of course, is the ultimate moment when the great tragedy of the crucifixion of Christ happened. And there were tears, but not of laughter. And the calls by all the religious politicians and religious priests who thought Jesus was, in fact, a heretic. And they needed to separate Jesus from their serious religious way, and so they crucified him. We can't mask it any other way. But in the end, of course, there's a great comedy. It is the greatest comedy in the history of the world. The tomb is empty. Death does not 
have the last word. God does. And when spoken, all the people who can hear it will collapse in great laughter, even the animals, because, of course, God being God always has the last laugh. Lighten up. God's God and we're not. Amen.